0: Good morning, good afternoon and good evening uh, wherever you are and welcome along to episode four of ED's COP26 covered podcast. This is our highly insightful, occasionally chaotic and always iron brew fueled daily podcast show for anyone who gives a damn about climate change and wants to get their daily COP fix without having to queue for over two hours, more on that later. Anyway, you're listening to Edie's content director, Luke Nichols on the morning of Wednesday, the 3rd of November, uh, and the Edie trio are reunited because I'm joined here in the Media Centre at COP26 in Glasgow by our trusty editor, Matt Mace. Matt, morning.
1: Morning. I've not had an iron bruise since I've got to Glasgow. I've just realised that. I've realised I'm not really embracing the culture that is Glasgow.
0: Yeah, I also thought that. Yeah, it's 9am and still no iron bruise blowing, so we can fix that, I'm sure. And our Fiona Bruce photocopy that is senior reporter Sarah George. Happy over that. Intro Sarah.
2: Yes, good morning to everyone except Luke.
0: <laughs> good stuff. So that's us, and we have another packed episode of interviews and sideline rants to get through. So let's crack on, shall we? Okay, yes, hello everyone, and welcome back to COP26 Covered. Matt, Sarah, Uh, Now that we're reunited after a a whirlwind day yesterday, I thought I'd start this episode like we start our brand meetings, actually, back in the ED headquarters. Our boss does this with a a bit of good news to to boost the morale and put us in a positive mindset. Um, Yeah, I'll
1: I'll, I'll jump in. I think um, think the good news is India setting a a net zero target. I mean, 2070 is going to be a contentious timeframe, but you've got to realise the population of that nation is in the billions. I read this morning now that that means that net zero targets now cover more than 80% of uh, global GDP, more than 60% of the population, more than like 75% of global um, CO2 emissions as well. So that's the kind of like injection we needed at COP after yesterday, which had some really moving speeches, but some pretty kind of sobering wake up
0: calls. Mm. Okay, very serious. Uh, Good news from Matt related to COP, which is good. I wasn't expecting that. Sarah?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to go with my good news being the forest deal, which came um, late last night, um, just before midnight. Um, Essentially around 100 nations collectively um, hosting 85% of the world's forest have committed to um, end deforestation, land use change and degradation by 2030 and to go beyond that if possible, um, restoring those degraded landscapes. Um, Crucially, there's already multi-billion dollar backing for this from the private sector and from um, governments, Um, and there's also measures in there to protect indigenous communities who will be affected by changes to the forest. Mm. Um, So it's got, as as usual, the devil's in the detail. We need more information. We need more delivery. um, But the reaction to that has been broadly
0: good. Mm. Good well there we go that's put me in a positive mindset so. if I
1: can just add a personal good news is that I have, I'm have. i not kind of dreaming of cop yet I think that's a good thing I'm not I have a horrible feeling that I'm going to be like um dreaming, you know like in The Shining where he's just coming, going around the corridors <laughs> yeah. and there's the little guy on the bike and the twins, I'm worried I'm going to do that there's just going to be blue carpets and yeah. the blue zone everywhere that hasn't happened yet so sanity levels are stable.
0: Good, that's probably because you only slept about four hours each night probably so that as well yeah. given it enough opportunity um, I'll round off the good news with something that's not really related to, well it is related to COP but it's more of a selfish bit of good news for, on, on behalf of ED. Um any ideas what I'm going to say? I have a, a feeling this may be about the, the medium that we are in right now. <laughs> it uh, is indeed i'm becoming a bit obsessed with the numbers um so do either of you want to guess where we're ranked now in the uk business chart on apple podcasts sarah
2: 49
0: 49 matt uh i'm going to go with 75 75 oh you're both too too optimistic i put you in a too positive frame of mind we're 91, 91. um so in the d- double g it's in the top 100 where we want to be and um, by episode 4 which is pretty good going for a, a small but mighty brand like us i must say so um introductions out the way and, and good news out the way anything else to mention any kind of uh, i mean we did yesterday some highlights and low lights might as well just oh, get it all off our chest lights now highlights i
1: a uh, plenty <laughs> i like I was, I was thinking about this, in we, we had to queue up again this morning, which was nowhere near as bad as yesterday. The queues yesterday were like two hours long, essentially, and um, compared to Sunday when we came in, it was, it was just night and day. It kind of felt like, I don't know if you've ever done those holidays where you go to the beach and you go into the ocean, but they've got like the little horseshoe alcove of brick walls, so you don't actually get any of the waves or the current. You're just swimming in the ocean when you're a kid, and you're like, this is easy. And then Saturday was like you go back to that same beach, but the walls aren't there, and you're just out in the ocean, and you're getting pulled everywhere by the tide. But the tide's just people everywhere, yeah. so busy. I don't like queues. I don't really like people that much, which is <laughs> bad when you're a journalist. So I did feel at the times like it was kind of just drowning in just a sea of people. It was it was comprehensively busy. Yeah. But um, I think. Now I'm, I, I adjust very quickly to things. So now I'm, I'm ready. My elbows are, have been kind of chalked. I'm ready to kind of nudge people out the way. Ready to go. Yeah.
0: Good. Well I thought I'd just I'd, I'd give you that kind of minute there Matt. Just I to needed kind of that, I needed that. <laughs> get, get that off your chest, yeah. It was. Uh, it couldn't have been a more British start could it to an event like this with <laughs> delayed trains, awful weather on the first day that we were here um, and as you say just endless queues yesterday. So uh, a frantic first few days. Um, Sarah as our senior reporter perhaps you could provide us with a quick recap of yesterday. We've touched on a couple of key points already but any other kind of highlights you think are worth kind of drawing out or mentioning from the last 24 hours?
2: Um, yeah so in a In addition to that I definitely mentioned Sir David Attenborough's speech which really set the tone, Um, he reflected on the degradation of the natural world and the climate over his lifetime and said that essentially in the next lifetime we do have a chance to completely reverse that, that we might be able to look back at his age and say that we turned a tragedy into a triumph. Um, He was then followed by some great speeches from nations including Barbados and Nigeria Um, as you've said we're here in rainy Glasgow there's adaptation on the table in that respect Um, but it's easy to sort of forget what the context is for so many other billions of people elsewhere so those were the really important speeches in my opinion Um, and then also we've seen a big announcement from Michael Bloomberg of Bloomberg and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, They've set out a new mission to ensure that one quarter of coal plants that are already operational worldwide are shut by 2025 um, and to block the pipeline for all forthcoming coal plants, Um, looking at just transition mechanisms, investment in clean energy and policy advocacy. So Mm. that takes the work that they've been doing, um, in places like the EU and the US Japan and South Korea more global
0: mm. are you dreaming about cop yet
2: I'm not I was saying I was saying earlier that I'm definitely having some wacky dreams but I can't remember them um, for the life of me and I think it's my brain sort of subconsciously telling me like, Hang on a minute, Um, we don't know this city, we don't know this this room. Where's where's your bed? Where's your cat? Where's your other half? Um, But not quite processing that properly. Sorry for my umming and ahhing, I'm pretty sure that Quasi Quarteng just walked past unless I'm hallucinating.
0: Oh, wow, okay. Interesting. we may have to grab the other recorder in a moment and go and have a chat with him if we can. So we'll speed up. Shameless plug as well, I'll mention to Sarah's Six Things You Need to Know article, which I saw that you filed uh, around half eleven last night and is now available on the site. So, yeah, the rumours are true. We hardly ever sleep, the ED team. Sarah, while we've got the mic, actually, um, uh, before we go, you've got the very important task of the listener quiz question. So as a reminder, we're asking our listeners a single question for every episode of the podcast throughout COP. And at the end of the series, the listeners who sends us the most answers to our daily questions will receive a Mystery Star prize. Uh, We've had several answers. The most correct answers. The most correct answers, correct. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, so remind us of what yesterday's question was. Uh, This was question three uh, and the answer.
2: So the question was, according to the COP26 coalition, what proportion of Indigenous people that had hoped to come to Glasgow were ultimately not able to make it? Um, The answer is two thirds. Um, but I'm happy to give a bit of leeway, so if you've mailed in with anything between 60% and 70% I'll say that you've had the correct mm-hmm. answer.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking back, there's a few people that I know have sent stuff that's in that spectrum, so a few people in the running for that Mystery Star Prize. So, uh, Matt, yes. talk us through today's episode then, what have we got planned, who will I be speaking to next? you're not speaking
1: to anyone um i think we need <laughs> to really kind of boost the the us up at the rankings you know 91's good but i think we can break top 50 if we just limit you in this <laughs> podcast <laughs> uh, no no I'm, I'm being i'm being cruel um we we've got a, a few moving pieces um time is just a concept in in the blue zone you walk in it's daylight you walk out it's nighttime. and what happens in between is just a bit of a blur so we've we've actually got some conversations that have already happened that are about to happen and that will happen um so today we're going to be very much um putting a mix of themes out i think to really kind of uh capture the the world leaders summit aspect so um we're going to be speaking to the corporate leaders group uh today um they they touched down in in the blue zone late last night and i pretty much grabbed them as they as soon as they entered and like please please talk to me Mm -hmm. um so we've got that coming along uh we're talking to a couple of chief executives as well of some um pretty well known businesses in the sustainability space, uh, a big manufacturer and also um, a bank. So right. I don't know if you want me to go into more details or. I don't no, know, no, I don't, no, don't want to spoil it too
0: soon. So, which one am I speaking to out of those? Oh. Um, Again, you can put your feet up, rest and <laughs> <Right. done> enough. <laughs> I guess I'll make myself useful in some other way then. Um, oh, maybe I'll go and try and find my good friend Ed Miliband. I'm sure he's milling around somewhere. but yeah, You're expecting that boy any day now, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Is uh, that
2: pun intended that Miliband is milling? It wasn't and intended,
0: it just kind of naturally flowed, so right. I'm sticking with it. Okay, well, I'll let you guys enjoy the rest of this episode without me then. We'll get started with our first interview of the day, which, as Matt said, was that uh, recorded conversation uh, yesterday evening with Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership.
1: Yep, so their Corporate Leaders Group uh, programme, so um, Beverly, be is their um, Senior Program Manager and
0: oversees the kind of net zero business alliance that they've put together. Okay, great stuff, so uh, let's play that now. <laughs>
1: COP26 is on home soil, that's well established. Glasgow is absolutely heaving with delegates in the early days, uh, all of which, you know, have some interaction with climate and sustainability. And when you hear the numbers associated with how many people are visiting, it's quite staggering in that sense. I myself am just one person, but I'm yet again located near the UK Pavilion, which has held numerous events, uh, some from UK businesses, all kind of focusing on the climate crisis in a different light. Some are focusing on their sector and their services, some are using it to kind of showcase their credentials. Uh, it's clear to me that businesses are viewing this uh, as an opportunity to tap into a wider audience uh, and showcase how they and their sectors are transforming me. Uh, I'm hoping to get a second opinion on this perspective. So joining me today is Beverly Cornaby, the Senior Programme Manager of the UK Corporate Leaders Group. Uh, so Beverly, thank you so much for joining me.
3: Thank you very much. I'm glad to be.
1: So um, I'm right thinking you're, you're managing the Corporate Leaders Group uh, and you chair the UK Business Group Alliance for Net Zeroes.
3: Yes, that's right. So uh, both with the Corporate Leaders Group, so that is a directly a group of UK, mostly UK businesses, but also some international businesses that have UK operations. Uh, they, they're all part of the race to zero so all we'll have progressive climate targets but also taking action so it's not just for them about the targets but it's actually you know we have them as part of it because this is part of their business and therefore they have to kind of show that across the whole business and show what they're doing on sustainability as much as you know just having those strong targets in place.
1: So you quite a collective voice that you, you kind of oversee in that sense and in terms of you know COP26 it is early days and I have pretty much just plucked you as soon as you've arrived here so you haven't really had a chance to soak in the sights but what is it you're kind of really hoping to see happen at the summit?
3: I think it's that collaboration and looking at actually what you know what actions need to happen but also what actions are already happening that can be ramped up that can be you know worked on between government between business and actually look at you know the real changes that we need there's a lot of urgent action that needs to happen you know not just you know kind of not just in the next decade but actually in the next year in the next couple of years to really set us on the right track for 2030 and if we don't start doing that now and we don't make commitments through COP then actually we're not going to be necessarily putting ourselves in the right place to you know be on track for net zero by 2050 and so therefore it's very important that the discussions that happen here that they actually result in something and that therefore there's concrete things actually coming out of it at the end of the two weeks.
1: No I, I completely agree and I find um a real kind of jarring mix of, of, of what I've seen so far. You know, there is obviously a lot of optimism around COP and how it can really kind of solve the climate crisis. But the, the conversations, certainly the high level ones we've heard from the first few days are, are quite, I mean, they're quite sobering to, to listen to. You know, David Attenborough's speech was amazing, very moving, but quite, you know, this is a make or break moment for for the planet. Uh, and then you look around and there's a lot of great kind of pavilions that are all kind of showcasing how countries or sectors or businesses are performing on, on this. But um, it does feel a little bit, I don't want to say circusy, but a bit, a bit more like th- there's a, there's a, they're showcasing what they've, what they've done well. And we all know that no one's perfect when it comes to sustainability in the climate crisis. Do you feel that perhaps businesses could be at danger of trying to showcase what they've done as a bit of a kind of PR stunt and not really tap into the severity of the conversations that we're seeing here?
3: I think that I mean all the businesses that we're working with they're certainly aware of the severity of the situation and that is why they've already been taking action and why they you know they're able to showcase because they've been taking that action for a number of years. I think there is the challenge of how do you take that forward and how do you work together, how do you, you know, kind of ramp that up because one business doing it alone is not going to have the impact. You need all businesses to come together, you need them to come together with governments and that is where the discussions happen. They don't necessarily happen on the stages, they happen behind, you know, they're in the smaller discussions, the round tables, the areas where they may not be publicizing it, but actually there are those conversations happening of how business can work with government to really kind of come up with those solutions and to make sure that the actions that they've already been taking can have a wider impact and that they can therefore, you know, people can learn from each other and be able to put that into place themselves. And I mean, we're here with many businesses that are already part of Race to Zero. They're doing this, but we mustn't forget that that is not the whole of the economy there is still a lot of the economy to shift. You know, if we if we had the, if everything was working like this, then in theory we wouldn't have a need for a COP. You know, non-state actors would be there, they're going to be doing it and, you know, working together. I think there's still a lot more action that needs to happen and therefore these businesses being able to share what they're already doing means others can learn from them and they can then work together and identify those opportunities where they can get the whole of their sectors on board and therefore the whole of the economy on board.
1: No, that's, that's a great point. Mate. You've got to kind of incentivise, it, almost, it's, it's almost like a sales pitch for sustainability for those that are perhaps not quite on board. And how, 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 you know, how do you plan on going about hopefully getting Race to Zero to cover more of the economy?
3: Well, I mean, we've got a number of events that we're doing over the next two weeks, but I think some of the most important ones we've got are actually the roundtable ones, the ones where we're bringing people together. And some of it will also come after COP. You know, COP is an opportunity. There are a certain number of people here, but there's not everyone here. And particularly, we're keen to bring around a broad range of stakeholders. So it's looking at how can we build on what we do here to kind of be able to do more beyond that. And particularly, I think this next year is going to be quite critical in that, is going away and having actions to work on and being able to take away something that's definitely, you know, much more substantial and that involves a lot more people as well.
1: No, I think that's the crucial point. COP isn't the, the end point. I think there's a danger it could be viewed as like Christmas, and maybe the next day, once you've got left of all the leftover food, you just ignore for another year. But th- this is, I mean, the, the Prime Minister himself said, you know, there's, there's a decade of critical action coming up. Uh, Alex Sharma said, you know, where, where Paris promised, Glasgow has to deliver. So over the next 10 years, and that's a long time for a business but not a long time in terms of you know where how the climates moved Um, how how do you really want to see kind of businesses mobilize action moving forward
3: I mean, you know, 10 years is isn't, isn't a long time for a business, because actually for some of them, their planning cycles are very long and therefore they do look at it, but it's, it's those next couple of years and seeing more come forward with really solid action plans and looking at actually the opportunities to work with each other, but also demonstrating where they're doing it, because it's not just about, you know, the commitments or the plans, it's actually about it, real change that needs to happen, so therefore making sure that that goes forward and that happens and therefore working together as much as they can to do that.
1: It sounds like you've got a lot planned and a lot of discussions going on and as i mentioned i did kind of just really kind of grab you for a chat as soon as you step foot in the blue zone so i will let you kind of have a look around and find your bearings but Beverly, it's been a pleasure speaking to you
3: thank you very much <laughs>
2: Yes, thank you to the Matt of COP Past for that interview setting the scene for today's podcast. Um, I'm now bringing you firmly back into today. That is the 2nd of November here at the Scottish Fence campus. Um, and it's a pleasure to be sat here, hopefully, before the lunch rush um, begins with the CEO of Archelic, um Hakan Bogoru, who we've had on our podcast before. But I think it's been a little while. So a pleasure to
4: see you. It has been some time. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Uh, it's especially meaningful that we're both actually physically here in Glasgow. It's been a long time since I've been with so many people in one place.
2: I think a lot of us can relate to to that and something I'd like to really give people a taste of that are listening is the atmosphere here um, for businesses. So I've heard from a few people that have been at past COPs, um, including the past president for COP20, about how the atmosphere is completely different for businesses than it has been um, at previous events. So non-state actors getting more space and just room as you say for more connection and communication so what's the atmosphere been like for you
4: Um, I agree that it is completely different it's a very fair assessment in summary Uh, in the past I think the environment and the climate has always been seen as the domain of governments or NGOs and businesses found very little space Uh, increasingly it became clear that this is not just uh, something governments can tackle now you have more observers uh, you have uh, various social groups represented from across the world, indigenous people, so it's a very colorful place. But business finding its own has taken time. Uh, I think now what's happened is in the face of failure, and I call it failure because uh, essentially governments have been failing us, uh, us meaning the people, um, and uh, that failure uh, has opened up space for businesses to step up and really differentiate themselves. Today you can see uh, voluntary offset in carbon markets are growing at incredible speeds reach 50 billion or so and uh, even though the carbon available today and the credits in the markets are pure poorly regulated not clearly um, not clearly vetted businesses are now stepping up and actually uh, doing the right thing by offsetting their own uh, carbon emissions so you are seeing a much more voluntary involvement and a much more proactive involvement of business and i think that they're, they're doing it because it makes business sense
2: And you mentioned offsetting there, but for me when I think of something that's voluntary and has gathered so much pace, it will be the science-based target um, setting. And we're we're speaking really as leaders are being told um, that their targets are not science-based, they're 2.7 degree um, aligned, but at the moment businesses are going further and faster in some respects. Um, I know that your business already had targets in line with 2C and has revised them in line with 1.5C. I'm sure we'll have a lot of people listening that are looking to say this to do sorry the same thing or maybe even to go and look at that new net zero standard. So it would be good to hear about your learnings from from that process.
4: This is the most important part of what's happening now in climate first of all uh, one degree warmer world which we're at today feels terrible right the forest fires the flooding so i don't understand how people can say okay to a 2.7 degree warmer world or an even two degree warmer world when we started on this journey two degrees was all we could see and get to um, with existing technologies and what we could project with what we could invest Uh, and sbti science-based Target initiative is was critical because everybody could say they would be target carbon neutral uh, net zero they would say that they're aligning with the two degree targets but there was no measurement mechanism and nothing reliable Uh, so a lot of greenwashing was happening i think with sbti now everything is measured calculated and approved Uh, our company is at uh, two degrees now we have also actually applied to be a 1.5 degree uh, company and that means essentially making significant cuts to what we call scope 3 emissions as well which is uh, Uh, which is what your products emit uh, while being used in the customer. Now, I think um, uh, we will all really have to do much more than what's being done today. A 2.7 degree warmer, the collection of uh, uh, targets today point to a 2.7 degree warmer world. But I don't accept that, and nobody else should. So this will put enough pressure on governments uh, to change their NDCs and companies to all align with 1.5 degrees. Archerich today is now a 1.5 degree aligned company. But for me, even 1.5 degrees is too much. I've seen what one degree looks like. So all of this understanding is interesting. Uh, we're, we're all saying we're going to do what's necessary. Are we doing what's necessary is another thing because as every day passes, reaching those targets becomes much, much, much harder, infinitely harder. And that's why I think companies really need to step up now, invest now and make those commitments uh, not only science-based targets initiative uh, commitments, but even more, go further and really differentiate themselves. And what I need to ask of consumers and people listening to this podcast is simply vote with your you know, money. Go to companies that are providing you services and goods which are clean and have these commitment, commitments in place which are verified. And actually, uh, the messaging of these companies that are really doing something or just saying something is also now differentiated so consumers can really choose now for the first time
2: well i think greenwashing is a whole other kettle of fish and we could do a whole podcast on that Um, so i wanted to touch on scope 3 emissions as you mentioned and for your company the bulk of those are going to come in consumer use Um, but obviously that's also things that happen further up in the value chain as well so on the other side um, and you've talked about how important it is for businesses to get a handle on this but do you feel that other businesses by and large have a good grasp on this? And if, if not, what are the next steps?
4: I wish everybody had a good grasp on this. Nobody does. When you talk about scope 1, I'll, I'll simplify it. Scope 1 and scope 2 emissions are what you emit when you're producing something. Uh, you know, your suppliers, the products you're using, the materials, the energy. That's scope 1 and scope 2. Archidic is now carbon neutral in scope 1 and scope 2 uh, emissions across its global manufacturing operations. You have two ways of doing that. One, you can buy carbon credit because you're producing something, you're emitting carbon. You can either offset that by buying carbon credits or you can find ways of creating carbon credits yourself. Buying carbon credits is not really credible. So uh, you need to actually create the carbon credits yourself. That's the first step. Then there's scope three emissions, which no one even talks about. Of the 200 largest companies in the world, only 40% even calculate or report their scope three emissions. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is people are ignoring it because it's such a big problem and it's a Pandora's box. It's kind of like telling a consumer, if you buy my product, this is the damage you're doing to the climate. And so nobody wants to do it. However, if we are going to have any credibility in getting to a 1.5 degree uh, world, reducing our carbon emissions, getting to net zero, Scope 3 is the only, um, only way to do it. Now, I'll, I'll give you one more number. You won't hear other CEOs say this either. I tell you that Archidic is carbon neutral 2019-2020 in scope 1 and scope 2 emissions. But what you don't know is what percentage of total emissions uh, of ours is scope 1 and scope 2 emissions. It's only 2%. 98% are scope 3 emissions. So you understand something that we're so proud of and the world says, wow, look at Archidic, they're carbon neutral already, is only, only covering 2% of our emissions. So what happened? to to be able to align with a 1.5 degree plan and get our plans uh, approved our targets approved by sbti we had to make very very deep cuts to our scope 3 emissions going forward that technology doesn't exist today so effectively what we've done is we've said we are committing to put resources human resources capital resources into um, uh, new technology that will allow us to reduce our scope 3 emissions by 50 percent actually 52 percent by 2030, that's a very, very steep cut, um, and I'm hoping we will become an example in emerging markets. It's not, you know, it's not very often you have a company leader from an emerging market talking about leading the world in uh, this type of um, this type of emissions cut, but it just has to happen, and I think all businesses need to follow suit. And I, honestly, I'm hopeful they will. And you started the conversation by saying the role of business has obviously increased and grown over here. Well, this is the role of business. You know, we need to set the right examples and we need to lead by those examples.
2: And I feel like a lot of businesses will be in the same boat um, in the scope theory is 90% or more. But as you say, it's still rare that we'd maybe see a CEO disclosing that or a CEO leading. But something I'm seeing in working with sustainability and energy professionals and reporting teams um, is that CEOs are letting them grow those teams and are coming to them, asking questions, engaging with them. Um, So as a CEO yourself, how do you feel this sort of board-level shift is is going? And I think
4: we had, uh, you know, as CEOs, you would have a, a sustainability director who knew what they were doing that, you know, put together a sustainability report, and that's kind of all you would really know about it. And every time a project came by that required a lot of capital, you would say, why, 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 push it down because you know you have better use for capex, obviously. Now it's completely different. I am the company's chief sustainability officer. I had to transform myself not only to understand the issue but also I had to transform my lifestyle to really reflect what I'm saying. I cannot go and, uh, you know, uh, live my life in a way which isn't consistent with what I'm preaching for the whole company. And I think that transformation has happened for every CEO. Now, if, if in boardrooms, the CEO is not owning and their number one topic is not sustainability, they are not doing the right thing by the shareholders and, and they will be penalized. I don't think companies, which have not already gotten on the right side of the curve today, have a chance of catching up uh, anymore. They, of course, they will try, but but uh, I think they're late to the game, and the future will judge them very harshly.
2: Well, thank you so much. That's such great insight, and. As you said at the beginning, great to connect with you in this atmosphere and in person and set the scene. Um, So I'm now going to pass the podcast baton onto our team this evening um, at the WWF bar. But we're not going to just be drinking. We will have more exclusive content for you there. And a big thank you once again to Hakan.
1: Thank you very much, sir. So yes, we're on the final leg of this ED COP26 covered podcast uh, and it's only taken four days but I finally managed to go somewhere else in Glasgow other than the blue or green zones uh, and the Airbnb that I sleep out of for a few hours each day. I am at the uh, Mosquito Bar which uh, looks amazing, doesn't sound how, how you think it's, it should. A really nice uh, kind of uh, swanky bar, kind of LED lights, nice hanging um, greenery as well. Uh, And I am here the night before COP26 finance day. I'm not here for a drink, I promise I'm here for work. Uh, This evening, WWF, Aviva, Make My Money Matter and Triodos Bank are holding a first in-person screening of their powerful new finance film. Uh, And this is gonna be taking place at the Glasgow Film Theater, which is just down the road. And the film is Our Planet Too Big To Fail. Um, This is, uh, I believe, a film that's Kind of been doing the rounds on, on on netflix or will be and has been kind of really well received already so i was quite intrigued to see there's a real kind of finance aspect to this pre-event that's happening today uh, so joining me at the bar for for a glass of water i will um stress uh is bevis watts uh, the ceo of traders bank uk and karen ellis who's the director of sustainable economy at wwf uk uh bevis firstly thank you so much uh for joining me here how has your COP26 experience been so far
5: uh, well uh, apart from the travel uh, caused by flooding and trees on the line due to the weather events that I think we're here uh, to <laughs> try and address I'm um, good and uh, yeah uh, optimistic about what might come out of it but also a realist I think that's the, the good balance to have there's been a lot of words a fair
1: bit of action but a long way to go and uh, Karen um, yeah same question to you how has how has the COP26 experience been for you so far
6: very similar, yes, had a bit of trouble getting here on uh, Sunday, so I've ended up turning up today. Um, uh, but, yeah, no, quite optimistic that we can get some really good agreements um, and hear more about uh, what governments are going to step up to do to, to tackle this crisis.
0: Yeah,
1: incredibly ironic that the the eve before a massive climate conference, uh, climate change and flooding, essentially cancelled half the trains there. Um, but, yeah, we, um, we're here to kind of discuss this, uh, this film being premiered and... Um, there's a real kind of finance aspect to, to this evening, which I'm, I'm, I'm quite intrigued about um, in regards to WWF and the, the film screen. What, what, what role does finance have to play in the message you're trying to get across here?
6: So uh, as we've all been hearing, there's a, a really serious climate and nature crisis that we're all facing at the moment and we need to take urgent action to turn it around. So basically nature loss is just as big a problem as climate change, it's part of the problem of climate change and it's a problem in its own right. We've seen huge loss of biodiversity and other aspects of our our natural assets in in the world in recent years and over decades. And so what we need to do is really change our economic system, the way we do business, very fundamentally in order to move away from an an economy which is based on extraction of resources and and unsustainable use of resources and then throwing it away. We need to move to an economy that's much more sustainable and circular and to do that we need to um, create the right rules of the game for the financial sector and the wider private sector, but the financial sector in particular because it obviously controls where the finances flow and the finances are what enables the rest of the economy. So the financial sector can play a really important role in reshaping the incentives in the whole economy to align with a net zero goal. So that's really why we found it very important to make sure that the sector understood the role it can play and the impact it will have if it, if it doesn't turn things around and, and carries on damaging the planet.
1: Tridels has been a, a uh, Bank UK has been a real kind of trailblazer in in this area. New net zero strategy um, released. Well, it was this week, if not today, I believe. So, um, and and it's been a kind of real advocate for this kind of change moving forward. So um, the the link between you you being here and, and the film seems quite um, obvious to me. But perhaps you'd like to explain in your own words. You know why why you feel this is a really powerful message that can be sent out.
5: Yeah, well, I mean, I entirely agree with Karen's call that we have multiple environmental emergencies. I mean, ultimately, Triodos was founded... On the principles that that people's money should be used in their long-term interests, and uh, you know, we, in financing fossil fuels and arms and various things, there, there are big question marks about what our financial system is actually doing in the interests of its customers. So, um, uh, we, we've been delighted to be um, involved in the film in a small way, uh, and try to amplify that sort of thinking and call on the finance sector to align itself more broadly to the Sustainable Development Goals, um, because there are huge social impacts. From from uh, uh, climate change and so on as well and uh, and we we want to see a more sustainable and fair finance system yeah we actually had um professor David Halpern on
1: yesterday's podcast and he was talking about behavior change he said one of the, the biggest things that, that, that you know the, the average consumer can do is is go to their their work and ask where their pench- what their pension is, is, is doing and, and the finance is there and we're seeing so much um, divestment away, but that that alone is not not necessarily enough. And then then bringing it back into to COP 26, there's been some huge money already not not thrown around, but but promised. You know, 12 billion dollars for reforestation announced today. We had the 3 billion climate aid from the UK yesterday. Um, do, do these sound like they're going to stack up to be anywhere near enough to to kind of combat what we need to? um Karen, maybe if I come to you first on on this one.
6: So I think. The bottom line is that we won't achieve our net zero and nature positive goals unless we get the private sector aligned with those goals, regardless of the amount of public finance and government money that comes forward. We really need to reshape the incentives in the whole private sector, because the private sector is responsible for the vast bulk of the carbon emissions that we make as, a, as, a, as an economy, so we absolutely need uh, the private sector to take action. Um, so. I think it's important that public money, government money, is used to help to create incentives and to um, catalyse more private finance into the right kinds of things. But the biggest game in town is really around what the private sector and and the financial sector can do to really pump prime that, that net zero transition.
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, I entirely agree again, I mean, if I reference a WWF and Greenpeace report called The Big Smoke, I think it showed that the UK finance sector, if it was a country, would be the world's ninth largest emitter. So we have huge responsibility as a finance sector for the global emissions, and so this isn't just a UK issue, we have UK banks financing coal-fired power, power stations and deforestation globally. So um, that's really the, the issues we need to highlight and, uh, and put more red lines around the finance sector. Uh, and, and I think we need much more ambitious regulation to achieve that. And uh, we currently have regulation that's focusing the finance sector on being aware of climate risks and what impact they will be on their portfolios and, and therefore how will it affect financial stability and economic stability. But we need to be, if we want a net zero society and a net zero economy, regulating a finance industry for net zero.
1: Some, some great points there. and and i suppose um tomorrow
5: of course is is finance
1: day um at Compton, or i mean when our listeners listen to this it might be today is finance day it's very confusing how podcasts work in that sense um so um we we you know there's agenda shaping up we've got mark carney um, expected to be in in many places at once kind of giving up various speeches lots of initiatives set to be announced what what are you two both hoping to see happen not just at, at finance day because climate finance is going to be a key theme running throughout COP, but what would you like to see happen um, at COP that, that really kind of um, pushes finance into the right sectors, the right markets, into the right hands, basically?
6: So um, I think what we'd really like to see, along the same lines as what we've been talking about, is government to really mandate the uh, alignment of, of the financial sector with net zero goals, and in particular to announce that it will require... Uh, all financial institutions and large companies to publish their transition plans that set out how they will achieve net zero and we'd love the government to actually announce that that will be required by 2023 so there's very clear expectations placed on um, companies to start to get their act together and really work out how they're going to do this and then government to legislate for that and for it to be a requirement for for all these companies to move in that direction that's what we'd really love to see coming out tomorrow. uh, uh,
5: I think um, but beyond that, I mean, to, to make that practical, I mean, so the finance sector is, is, is a big beast. There's the asset management, pensions industry, there's the banking industry and, and so on. If, if I talk to banking, we today have announced our own net zero target. And we start from a very low carbon intensive place. We, we've never financed fossil fuels and other high emitting industries and so on. We've, we've led on um, uh, producing a methodology called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials on how you account for carbon as a financial institution. So we have a good understanding of where we start from. And we've announced a target of 2035 saying, actually, honestly, that's really difficult for us. And so what we really want to see is um, action speeded up and absolutely the mandatory net zero targets and transition plans apply to that. But to support that we need a number of international agreements around common taxonomy for defining what is uh, good, what is bad. We need common methodologies for carbon disclosure and we we need much higher uh, requirements on transparency and disclosure. Uh, so we can really scrutinize um, uh, what progress is being made and and if we don't have those agreed globally then we end up in a sort of competitive green finance market and countries and different regulatory jurisdictions competing for uh, for business maybe being slightly less green than somewhere else so uh, that's that's kind of the real ambition in my mind yeah the market seems like it's it's quite um, in its infancy in, in the sense of, of that climate right.
1: finance and like you said um, it's almost dangerous that as as climate really rises up the agenda in, in the finance institute the gear yeah, greenwash can be rife not not on purpose but just because of those there's lack of definitions that you've you pointed out and we at ed we write and we we publish content for really proactive businesses that i think see the carrot more than the stick when it comes to sustainability they've embraced it but but you know large parts of the economy large parts of sectors um they 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 probably react more to to the stick um that that, that kind of policy that we need to see but um Policy aside, there's there's still a great way for um, you know, businesses to, to really, you know, switch that mindset from stick to carrot and, and see the benefits that, that being more sustainable can bring. And I'd uh, quite interested to see where you feel your role as, as individuals come in, in advocating for change. You know, is it engaging with government lobbying, is it kind of reaching out to businesses and, and, and kind of breaking down a really complex topic which is the climate crisis, into bite size changes for them? Karen, maybe if we start here.
6: Yeah, I think there's many different roles. Um, One role is to to sort of monitor and hold to account, because um, going back to this point you just made about Greenwash, uh, we did a a net zero scorecard, which we published a few weeks back, maybe a month ago, which looked at the FTSE 100 and looked at how many of them had published a net zero target, had published a transition plan, um, had made it science-based, etc. But the interesting thing was that even though maybe um, three quarters had published a net zero target, 20% or less had got a transition plan. So even though they've got a target, they've got no idea, or at least not published, uh, any sort of plan for how they're going to get there. So that is why when you start to worry about the risk of greenwash, you know, what are they actually doing to, to uh, implement that target? Also, when the targets are a long way off, you never know if any short term action is going to happen. So one of them, I think, is holding them to account. And another role I'd just highlight is really um, building awareness so that's where that film the film we're watching tonight came in it was really about especially on nature raising awareness of the financial sector about the nature crisis about their role in it and about the solutions because I think that's much less well known or at least a few years ago much less well known than the climate threat and less well understood as well so we really wanted to sort of um, powerfully affect the understanding and willingness to engage with that agenda and start to build up the resources and capacity to address it because that's the next big thing that the financial sector is going to have to work on.
1: Yeah I mean I've, I've been reporting on, on climate and, and nature for uh, well since the, since the Paris agreement basically and there was always a, a relatively easy way of assigning a, a monetary value to the climate crisis whereas nature is much less defined in a metric that most financial institutions would understand so that's that's a, a great point point. and and, and Befis, as, as bank yourself i imagine uh, a key role you have is is trying to really disrupt the sector to to you know do what you said and, and set those kind of really challenging targets like the 2035 one that you've set
5: Yeah, I I guess we've always, for more than 40 years, tried to be a reference point to show that sustainable finance, you know, uh, can be successful uh, and and we can think differently about the role of the finance sector. So we try to play a role in financing change. I mean, just in the last year, we financed the UK's first... Um, all-electric intercity coach service here in Scotland between Edinburgh and Dundee, the UK's first net zero housing development built for private sale, and the first major rollout of electric vehicle charging points to supermarket car parks. So we, uh, we have partly a role in supporting innovators and pioneering businesses and business models, uh, but we, we also then try to change finance, and, uh, and so we are involved in in campaigning and influencing uh, and thought leadership trying to really, um, yeah, m- move the the bigger um, uh, problem and the wider sector uh, in a direction that's more sustainable.
1: Brilliant. Well, I mean, hopefully everyone uh, listening, that's given you a really nice taster of what lies ahead for tomorrow with the finance theme at COP26 and a, and a theme that will no doubt run through every other of the themed days uh, at the summit. And, um, and speaking of tasters, I, I have been informed that you both uh, need to attend a kind of pre-event meal before going into it and I, I don't want to uh to keep you from that before the premiere so I will let you um go and, and enjoy the rest of the evening while I uh, grab my popcorn before the movie so thank you so much
5: thanks very much thank, thank you. you
1: and now before I do tuck into uh, my popcorn and I can hear uh, the cocktail shaker shaking as well so maybe I'll have one now this podcast is finishing uh, I will close off with the usual shameless plug to make sure you are subscribed to this COP26 covered podcast we are publishing a new episode every day throughout COP26 trying to capture all those big announcements and bringing you a range of exclusive interviews from the various zones or in this case bars at COP uh, you can subscribe to COP26 covered uh, wherever you get your podcast itunes spotify and more and for full information and audio links visit ed.net forward slash podcast forward slash cop 26 but we'll be back tomorrow for another full roundup and series of interviews from the all-important finance day of cop 26 here in glasgow
3: speak to you then goodbye